The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are God. That's obvious, but we say it to remind ourselves and to, and to say thank you, to, to acknowledge it to you and say thank you for it. You are God. You reign, and you reign to accomplish your good purposes in us, and we've seen some of that, and we say thank you for your grace that empowered it. And we are going to be so bold as to ask you for more. Would you give us more grace to move us as your people even more even more into, into line with you and your will and your purposes in the world. To change us, to grow us up, to mature us. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we, as we consider the topic of prayer and how it, it sits in, in our lives in this world, that you, would, that you would move us to be a people who hear your word and hear what it's, what it's saying and, and believe what it's said. And by that faith, pray. So Lord, I'm not asking you directly to make us a praying people. I'm asking you to make us a believing people who then will pray. Towards that end, Lord, open up this passage to us and and make it clear. Press on to us what's here, what we need to see. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would give direction to my words and to our hearing this morning so that your church would be built and that your name would be honored. Thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, your, your commitment to build your people. Do that now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 18. And while it is the beginning of a new chapter, we're actually still on the same subject matter. So continuing on with the same general topics that we started in chapter 17. Previous weeks we've been there and we've seen the need for faith in Christ, dependence on, a leaning into, grabbing hold of Jesus, this King, and as we grab hold of him in in faith, embrace him, that's what brings us into the experience of the kingdom of the King, his reign, his rule in this world, which, as we saw last week, has already arrived in Jesus, it's already here, and is not yet here fully, not yet here completely. This was the tension in last week's passage. Here's the king who brings the kingdom, who can be embraced by faith, and it's, that's real and now, but not yet complete. And so we live in the, this middle time, this tension, which is what's going to connect us into our passage for today, in fact. We live in this tension in, in between the, the day and the coming day, And while here, we indeed are in the kingdom and indeed have experienced many of the blessings and and many of the the fruits, many of of the sweetnesses of the reign of the king. But, as Jesus points out very clearly in the last part of what we looked at last week, we're still facing a world that is hostile. As Jesus said of himself and of we who will be followers of him, we still, he did, he, he did, we will, we do suffer many things and are rejected by this generation. 
follow a crucified Christ. And so sometimes, just as it was in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, sometimes we will be a people now who live in a world surrounded by and ruled by sin, and so we are attacked and hurt and persecuted, deliberately so. And at other times, less deliberately so and more just general subtle drift, subtle opposition to the truth. A turning away from a drifting away of, of God and, and his truth. And that makes the world sometimes hard to live in and painful to live in and, and disruptive. We long then, living in this time here with much blessing but still much tension and trouble, we long then, this is Jesus' point, we desire to see the day completed and the kingdom in all of its fullness will come in. Deliverance will be finalized and justice done against all ungodliness and all sin and all evil. And to help us with that, Jesus does a couple things. Last week, he painted for us a picture of that day. Sobering as it is, he, he holds it up and reminds us, this is coming. See it. We give perspective to everything else that's going on here. And then, today, chapter 18... Still in the same vein, still with the same concerns on, in, in his mind, on our minds, he holds up something else that will help us. He commends to us prayer. He's going to discuss prayer and, and call us to persistent prayer as a help to us now as we are in this, this period of waiting in the middle. We connect to God and, and we commune with God in prayer and we receive from God help here in this time of need. So that's what we're going to look at today, what Jesus has to tell us about prayer in this time of, of our struggling now. So I'm going to read the passage and then make a couple of observations about it, the, this parable that Jesus tells and the comments that he makes, and then pass back through it, after passing back through it, make three observations. So this is Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Let me read it. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Luke 18. Verse 1 begins with, he told them a parable. Them being the same they from the very verse right preceding it. He's talking to the disciples. So he's He's still in the same train of thought, which becomes even more obvious when we look at verse 8, talking about the Son of Man coming. 
which was the same topic he was just addressing in the previous chapter. He's still in the same train of thought here, looking at the second coming of Christ, and he told his disciples a parable in order to help his people pray persistently and not get disappointed and give up. This is a pretty easy parable to interpret because he tells us right off what the point is. To pray persistently and not lose heart, that is, not give up. He tells them a parable about a judge. Again, hard to miss this. He neither feared God nor respected man. We're told that twice. He's a judge who doesn't care what God thinks, and he doesn't care about people and what they think. He does not care. There's nothing in him that would ever be concerned to do the right thing because it's the right thing or to do the right thing because it would help or hurt other people. Other people are concerned. He, he doesn't care about anybody, not even widows, a prime category of concern in all the Bible and really in, in much of society. Widows, women who are defenseless, and this one, somehow or another being abused, taken advantage of, she's a vulnerable woman, the other character in the parable. She has a need for justice, it says. And this man is the judge. The only one in town who can give it to her. And so, she goes to him. And she kept going. Again, 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 again. Verse 3. And because the judge has zero intrinsic interest in helping her, he does nothing. Again, and again, again, again. That's how he is. He cares only about himself and his own comfort. And that, of course, is what finally moves him to act. She keeps going, and naturally, like she knew she would, she wears him down with her persistence. And only out of concern for himself does he finally give her the justice that she needs. That's the parable. Quite easy to understand, as I said, he told us what he, what he wants us to get out of that. Pray persistently. Keep asking like the widow did. So I'm not going to major on that point because that's obvious. What instead we're going to do is we're going to look at, at three observations from the parable and from Jesus' elaboration on it to see what Jesus means to, move, means, means to tell us here that would move us towards being a people who pray like this persistently without losing heart. That's what we're supposed to be, but I'm not just going to say, do that, let's pray, and be done. But we're going to say, what does Jesus say here? What does Jesus say here that he thinks will help move us toward that, help incline us to be that kind of people? And I think there are, there are three things here we're going to pull out and, and look at. Here's the first one. Something about who we are to God. First observation, in election, the righteous God chose to set his steadfast love on us. This is the first observation here. In election, the righteous God chose to set his steadfast love on us. We start with election, and I recognize as soon as I say that word, some of us go, eh. it's okay, don't. Election is an extremely important biblical doctrine. 
Very common in the Bible. Very important. And we start with it because of what Jesus says in verse 7. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? To his elect. His elect ones. His chosen ones. That's what election means. Choosing. It's a term that Jesus uses here in place of any number of other words that he could have used, like his people, would not God give justice to his people, or would not God give justice to his followers, to believers, to his own, because that's the people that Jesus is talking to and talking about, the people of God, disciples. God will give justice to you who cry out to him day and night, which is why I'm talking to you, you disciples. He could, he could have said that, and that would make actually a little bit more sense in the, the way Luke usually talks about what we would call Christians. He calls them disciples most commonly. That would have been maybe a more expected word. But Jesus didn't use that word. Why not? Well, to answer that, we need to be clear on what election is. Election is a sovereign decision of God. Sovereign, meaning God does it all by himself. By his own authority, according to what he himself freely decides. He's not under compulsion or obligation, not influence, doesn't take any counsel from any other outside source. He is his own counselor. He does not simply ratify someone else's choice. He chooses. He elects, chooses, particular people to be his people, which is why he can call them the elect ones, the elect here. Like right here, or, or in many other places in the Bible. Think of First Peter chapter 1, God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Uh, elect, he means Christians. Or like Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes of Christians, we know brothers, see there's another word he could use, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, there's the word, elected you, how does Paul know that the Christians were chosen? Well, next verse, this is 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. We know because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. In other words, what's Paul saying? We know that God chose you talking to Christians, to be his, chose to love you because when we preached to you like we do to everybody everywhere, something different happened, not like happened to everyone everywhere. We preached and God the Holy Spirit in power came along with that preaching and caused something to happen to you. Conviction, change, salvation, deliverance. Therefore, reasoning backwards, that's what Paul's doing, reasoning backwards, that's how we know you were chosen of God, loved of God in the past. What happened now? Now, election is a large topic, and this is not the place for all that this morning. I'm going into this 
for a reason. But before we get to that reason, notice this. Please understand that. What Paul's doing there is what we should always do, what we should always hear. He's preaching to everyone everywhere. And everyone everywhere should hear the gospel. Should hear about our need, our need for forgiveness and God's provision of Christ, the forgiver. Of his atonement on the cross that pays for our sin. And hearing that, everyone should hear it and everyone should believe it. And everyone, if everyone believed it, everyone then would by faith join up to this king, come into the kingdom, be delivered and find life. And if you did that, then you would discover something marvelous, something previously unknown about yourself. Reasoning backwards, that in eternity past, God chose you. God chose to put his love on you. In eternity past, and then down through all the corridors of time, he has pursued you. He loved you, he chose you in the past, and he chased you down and sought you out and powerfully saved you. Which is the point this morning. In election, the righteous God chose to set his love on you. Steadfast love. Sure love. on a particular people, on you, Christian. And Jesus calls us elect here, rather than just disciples or believers or something, he calls us elect here to remind us of this point. That the God who is righteous, who cannot lie, who cannot sin, who cannot break his promise, who cannot break his word, the righteous God, Christian, for you in particular, and therefore then for all of us who are in the body, he decided to set his love on you. He chased you down for the very purpose of saving you, saving you first into relationship with him and out of condemnation, to save you from the penalty of sin, to save you then as he then continues to work in you, to save you from the power of sin over your life, and one day, certainly, to save you from the very presence of sin. That's the goal. That's the whole reason he chose you and put his love on you for that salvation. He has had his eye on you for forever. This is, this is meaty truth, but it is precious truth. If you, will, if you will grasp it, that means that you are so vastly, deeply, widely, wholly, and completely sought after and loved. He is determined to save you. He has captured you, and he is carrying you home even now. His ways and his timing is hard to understand, sure, sometimes. He's God. His ways are above ours. But he is completely unlike the unrighteous judge in the parable. 
who does not care anything about God's plan and does not care anything about this woman in front of him. This is the God who is completely concerned to carry out his full plan, rightly so, and who is completely concerned for you. He is so committed to you from eternity past that he sent Christ to pursue you, to save you, and to carry you. He is not aloof, and he is not detached, and he is not unaware. He is not unconcerned or indifferent or capricious, sometimes doing one thing and sometimes doing something else, and sometimes appearing alert and sometimes appearing totally absent. No. That is not this God. That is not who he is and not how he views you. He sees you and he knows you and is alert and consistently committed to you. He is grieved when you grieve. And he is wounded when you are wounded. And he is angered when you are attacked. It is indeed his will now that the Christ be a suffering Christ and that we the followers of Christ be followers of him carrying a cross. That is true. That is his will now. But he will certainly keep his intended promised goal, the reason he chose you and chased you, the goal to make you pure and spotless and holy with him in whose presence is fullness of joy. Pleasure forevermore with him in the new heaven and the new earth is the reason that he chose you and put his love on you, and he is committed to that and will get it done. You are his elect. It cannot be any other way. Who are you in the eyes of God? Not some nuisance. Not some bother who keeps pestering him. Not some screw-up that keeps ruining his world. Some blot on the church. Apart from you, this would be a nice place. By no means. By no means. You, we, are his people, are his, by his choice, by his committed action. He's a righteous God who will not who will not throw away those he committed himself to, who will not break his promises to you. He made you his, and he called you into his presence, and he longs to hear from you, longs to give himself to you. We have, if, if we're going to become a praying people, the first place we need to sit is in is comfortably, consciously, comfortably in the lap of the God who loves you. Intentionally, by his own choice. Knowing you fully, he chose you. 
You are his elect. And when he chose you, he poured out on you. He set upon you his steadfast love that is not going anywhere. It will carry you home. That's who we are in his eyes. Not irritated by you, but he loves for you to come to him and to engage with him and to ask and to listen. He's eager that we pray. And he's eager to answer, which leads us to the next point, the next observation. But I think I want to go back. Whenever I, whenever I touch on, and, and I, I understand there are a hundred things about election I didn't touch on here, but whenever I touch on the doctrine of election, is uh, sometimes in conversation it generates turmoil. Sometimes it, it generates uh, conflict. But what I, what I wish it generated and what it generates in me most often is, is a, a wonder at the depth of it because it is, it is, it is amazing. And it, it is the love of God. It is the love of God. If God did not elect but left us to ourselves, we would uniformly, universally, 100% be lost. It is the love of God that he pursues us like that, effectively. It's a sweet thing. Come to this God and, and find this God to be as, as strong and as wise and as good as he is. I'm, I marvel at the doctrine of election, and you should too. Anyway, next point. I kind of want to preach about election, but I should not. <laughs> because that's only one point. But it is one of the building blocks. He calls us his elect to trigger something to make us think about what we were just talking about there. Second observation. Only the righteous God is willing and able to give us the justice we need. Only the righteous God is willing and able to give us the justice we need. As we saw, justice is what the widow wants and needs in the parable on her request and in the judge's acknowledgement. And it's why she goes to this particular guy as unrighteous and uncaring as he is. It's because he's the one who can do it. So she goes to him. And justice is what Jesus emphasizes in both verses 7 and 8. The rhetorical question, will not God give justice to his elect? And the answer, I tell you, there's that phrase of underlining, this is for certain here, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Giving and getting justice is central here. So what's meant by justice? Certainly when we hear the word justice and we see it in the context of a judge, we think of a courtroom and the rendering of a verdict that pops into our minds right away. And that's not inappropriate. It's just not full. If you were to render a verdict in a courtroom for it to be justice, it would have to be the right verdict. 
And in fact, the word justice is related to the word righteousness. If you were to see them in the original language, you'd say, oh, these are sister words here. In the same background. Righteousness, or maybe we might say rightness. Between people, in, in the creation, in the world, rightness in life. To do or to enact or to execute justice means to make the right thing happen. Make righteousness come about where it might not otherwise or where it isn't currently. So the need here is for justice to be done, for wrong to be addressed and righted, for the right thing to be enacted. And all of the world longs for it. This is a big word today, justice. It's, a, it's in our society in all kinds of ways, and maybe it's something that, that you particularly resonate with. We all do in a way because we all know instinctively that justice, that, that rightness, is the attitude, is, is the atmosphere that allows for life to flourish. So, we want justice. We want what's right to be. Everybody does. In a society, we have to acknowledge that we have different and mistaken views of what is right. So, lots of times, I, I'm not giving a universal endorsement to the pursuit of justice because lots of times in our society, what is pursued as justice is actually injustice and wrong. We should be clear about that. However, the instinct is right. It's correct. We do need justice. We do want justice. The world must have justice. And for his people, Jesus promises to give us justice. To make what is right be. How so? Well, remember the context. Context set for us by the previous chapter, of which this is just a continuation. We live in the in-between time, between the times. And rightness, righteousness, has already begun and is already being pressed into the creation by Jesus. That's, that's kind of the point of many of the miracles. He's beginning to heal. He's beginning to restore and make right. It is not right that people be blind. It is not right that people be deaf. It is not right that people be oppressed by demons. So he's beginning to make it right, to restore it. It's not right that people be, be tempted and trapped into and be locked up in sin. So he's beginning to restore by, by saving people. That's going on already right now. And yet we wait for the second coming because we know that ultimately... What has begun is not going to be full, not going to be complete, because it is still the fact that we follow the man of sorrows. And it's not right that the king be a man of sorrows, or that his elect be troubled and people who mourn, people who are afflicted. It's not right. It's not how he made the world. For this to be a world plagued with sin, and brokenness, and pain, and disease, and shortage, and toil, that's not Right. Why Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing he's about to raise him, but he's looking at something not 
right. And so, we've got this tension. We, are, we, we long, day by day by day by day, for justice, for what is right to come to pass here on earth as it is in heaven. For God to attend to us here and now. We, we need God's power to come and attend to us here and now and to honor his name here and to carry out his will here and to provide for our daily bread and to keep us from sin and temptation and evil. Right now. And ultimately, we need him to come and fix it all. We need justice to come on the day when the Son of Man will judge the nations and cast out all evil and condemn it and renew the earth finally and fully. And every destructive thing and every painful thing and every suffering-inducing thing and every evil thing will be gone. The fall and the curse will be overcome. Justice. kingdom of peace, of shalom, whole rest will arrive. We need that deeply and profoundly. Here and now, we need God's justice and we cry out for it. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, we think, Lord, let your will be done here in this situation and we should be thinking, let your will be done finally and fully and wholly. Your kingdom come here now in this place and your kingdom come in fullness. Both of those perspectives should be in mind. We need God to do this. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We cannot make it right here and we cannot make it right here. He is the only judge in town who can press rightness into the world and who can change the world to make it right. And every touch point you have in this world with grief and with sorrow and with trouble should be immediately and quickly connected to, oh God, help, oh God, help. Help now and help. Bring justice here. Make it right and make it all right. This is the justice of God that your heart is longing for. This and ultimately this. We know, you know, if, if, it is, if our eyes are only set here on the earth and if our, if our prayers only are concerned with, with various iterations of problem, daily problem, that's going to go on endlessly. We need this address and we need this address. And only God can address it. And he himself longs to address it. He's appointed Christ to do it. He's given into his hand authority to unroll the scroll. This is in the book of Revelation. To, to take the seal off the scroll that will 
unwrap history and bring about its closure. It's a very elaborate word picture, but what he's trying to say is there's only one who has the power, who has the authority to fix and to fix. And it's this king. He alone can do it, and he wants to. How eager he is to bring about justice on the earth. He is the righteous God. He is strongly provoked. Even in his patience. He is remarkably patient and remarkably humble in this time now. But he is strongly provoked. He sees rebellion and he sees fall. And this king is zealous for the honor and glory of his father. And keenly concerned for the good of his elect. He is not laissez-faire about what's going on here. He is strongly provoked and deeply moved and eager to fix it. He wants his father's name hallowed. He wants his kingdom to come. He wants his will done on earth as it is in heaven and as it rightly should be. He wants his beloved people's needs met. He wants us protected. He wants us saved fully and finally. Who are we? We are his elect, dearly beloved by him. Who is he? He is a God who is righteous and is eager and willing and the only one who is able to make it right, to give us what we need. This is one we should cry out to. If you see how he sees you and sees, see who he is, what we need and what he can bring, he is willing and able, the only one. And to him we should eagerly pray and take our needs to him and soon he will answer. Jesus' point here a couple times. He will not long delay over you. I tell you, he will give justice speedily. Which maybe makes us pause there because it, it makes us ask a curious question. Okay, fix, fix. It's been 2,000 years and 13 years since I started praying for that. Haven't fixed either. Speedily? Not long delay? Okay. You gotta think about that. It has taken him 2,000 plus years. He has not come back yet, obviously. And perhaps there is that one need that you've been crying out for for months and years that he has not answered. What do we do with that? That's going to move us on towards the third point, but before we go there, let's just point out he has answered some prayers. He, he has done some. Has he done everything that we've been praying for for years? No. Has he done nothing? No, no, no. By no means. He's done much. How does he choose? How does he choose which prayers to answer and, and when? Well, in some ways we have to say he is God. 
His ways are higher than mine. I don't know how he chooses his ways, how he chooses his timing. I, I don't know. And then I would throw you back into that you are his people. He is the righteous God committed to his ways that are good. But there's something else here that we should think about. And that's the third point. He sometimes requires persistence in prayer in order also to help us with our greatest need of all. He sometimes requires persistence in prayer in order to help us with our greatest need of all. So understand what I'm doing here at this third point. The first two points are encouraging us to pray by seeing who we are in his eyes, by seeing who he is and what he gives that we need it. And the third point is addressing one thing that tends to undermine our prayer. We tend to think, it's been 2,000 years. We tend to think, it's been 13, 15, does this matter? So I'm trying to answer that third point, to remove a barrier to prayer. He sometimes requires persistence in prayer in order also to help us with our greatest need of all. So the question we want to ask is, is why is there any time delay? If, if what has already been said, how he views us, who he is, what he, what he wants to do, what he can do, why is there any time delay? And we should notice that Jesus' statements here anticipate there will be some time delay. If, if we're going to talk about persistence, there's got to be some period to persist through. He will not delay long means there might be some delay. Speedily is different than immediately. He implies there will be some delay. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But why is there any delay? Well, it's not because he needs to be coerced or badgered or awakened or motivated. He doesn't care about us and he doesn't know what he wants to do and can't do it and can't be bothered. He's totally unlike the unrighteous judge. So what is it? Well, maybe consider this for a second. Have you ever been or ever seen the adult, let's just say it's a parent, let's say it's a mother, in the kitchen with a child who says, oh, fresh baked chocolate chip cookies. Can I have one? As they sit on the cooling rack on the counter. Can I have one? Maybe it's been you, maybe you've seen this. No answer from mom. Why not? Why no answer? Well, maybe she didn't hear. No, she heard. Maybe she doesn't care. No, she cares. She made the cookies. They're intended to be eaten. Maybe she hates this kid. Unlikely. <laughs> What's going on? Why no answer? Well, maybe... There's a little test going on to see what happens in junior. Can I have a cookie? Let's see where this goes. Keeps washing the dishes. Is it going to go to 
I know I'm supposed to ask. Not hearing an answer, skip that, I'm going to get what I want. Is that where it's going to go? Mom's wanting to know. What's in this person's heart? Or is it going to go, you don't care about me. You never give me anything good. Stomp out of the room. What's in this person's heart? What, what, what's going on there? Or is it going to go to, Mom, can I have a cookie? Again. Is this, is this, is Junior right here convinced that cookies are good and convinced that mom is good, convinced that he needs cookies and convinced that he's a loved one that she will do good to? Or does he think he knows best and does he think ill of her? What's going to happen here? Let's see. I'm going to keep washing the dishes. I heard the request. I'm going to wait. What's the thing that you most need? Think about that for a second. What do you most need and therefore most want? Justice in some way, the power of God at work in your life to fix things, Yes, indeed. The second coming, the day of full justice, the fullness of the kingdom poured out as the curse is brought to an end. Yes, indeed. But what do you most need? What do you most want? What one thing would you ask for? What one thing would you seek? If you had to suffer the loss of all other things and count them all as rubbish to gain one thing, what would it be? Maybe for yourself, you know what it should be, but it isn't what it is. Maybe that's why God waits. This God met and communed with in Christ is what each of us most needs. And God is concerned to give us this too, also. In fact, mostly so. Because at the end of this waiting period, when all these needs are gone, and at the end of the second coming, when all the curse is wiped away, what's the point of all that? The point of all that is to give us this with him. Now in part and then fully forever. That's what he is most concerned to give us, along with all good things. This holy, glorious, righteous, electing, loving generous, compassionate, merciful, gracious God who draws near to his people now in Christ is whom we most need. And how do we meet with him? How do we interact with him? Walk with him and know him? Well, 
Well, by a living and active faith. That is, kind of a Christian buzzword, I need to define that. That is, faith by a conscious, that is intelligent and thoughtful, a conscious entrusting of myself and my life to him based on what he has told me and promised me about me and about him and about us together. So I, I hear, I, I read what he has said about me, what he has said about him, what he has said about us, and consciously, thoughtfully, I give myself to that, I trust that. And what happens then is the Spirit of God fills your, fills my heart. I commune with him. Experience him. He becomes real in my life. More real than all the trouble out here. He becomes real in the midst of all the trouble out here. I sit down at table with him in the presence of all of my enemies. Would I like him to eliminate the enemies? Yes. Will he one day eliminate the enemies? Yes. But what I most need is to sit at table with him now and forever. Who cares about the enemies? He cares about the enemies. He cares most about you with him. And the enemies can't stop that. And maybe the enemies actually drive that. As you see, I need help. I need help. Can I get it myself? You never give me anything good. I'm going to get it my own way. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. No, 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 no. He's the one. He's the one who can. He's the one who's willing. He's the one who's good. He loves me as his chosen one. I will turn to him and trust myself to him. And what you'll find there often is deliverance from evil all around you and also most importantly, you will find that you have closed with him and experience him now. Now, unless you think I'm making all this up, verse 8. Nevertheless, this is the very end, which on its own seems a little odd. I'm sure you've understood it like I've just been talking about it. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Faith relates to all this because prayer is really about faith and prayerlessness is about unbelief. I call out to mom for a cookie. If I actually believe, I'll keep calling out to her. And if I don't, I'll get it myself or go away. Do without. Angry. If you were to examine you right now, would the Son of Man find faith in you? We need such active faith. Such persistent praying faith now in this life to make it through the time of waiting. This period, it is difficult. God sometimes requires persistence. In other words, a way of putting that is sometimes he delays a little bit to raise the issue of faith in us. What do you believe? In whom do you trust? And if in that moment you will say, my life is bound up in you, 
Where else can we go, Lord? We have no other hope but you. Faith, as it blossoms, will bring you back to him and will bring you him. And as you pray, 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 you will find him willing and eager to give justice, the justice that we need. He set his love on you and will not leave you. He will do right by you. He cannot do wrong. It cannot be otherwise. So trust him and pray. Come near to him and you will find him. And as you come near to him and find him, along with that you'll find all kinds of good things as he answers your prayer and gives you what you need. So let us be a people who pray, who pray without losing heart. If we would be a people who are, who are concerned to draw near to God, who are a people like Mary, who, who want to sit at his feet and commune with him, God would move because things happen when, when we pray. He does things in response to prayer. Thing, we would be a, a people who, who experience things that are sweet and good, but we would also be a people who experience God, and that is itself sweet and good. So may God work this into us. Use these truths to press us towards persistent prayer that doesn't lose heart. Towards that end, let me pray now. Father, would you grow in us faith? Would you grow in us a faith that sees what you say about us and, and what you say about yourself and what you say about our need and, and your attitude and willingness to meet that need for us that sees all of that and says, yes. Trust you. Will you grow that in us? And then from that, would you cause to flourish and persist? Prayer. Make it more than just head knowledge, Lord. Make it a living and active faith. Make it to people who pray. Father, we're going to move to communion now. And as we do that, would you meet with us? Would you use this particular time period where we, we do something tangible. We celebrate the Lord's table. We don't just drink some juice and eat some bread. We celebrate the Lord's table, remembering, seeing with our eyes, taking into our hand the elements that, that point out this is who you are. This is how you have acted towards us. Your faithfulness to make covenant with us. Press that home to us, Lord, and grow faith in us in thanksgiving. Bring us to your feet, rejoicing. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others 
but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.